I was very, very, very reluctant to seek any kind of help. I wanted to keep quiet. I was so ashamed of what was going on. I thought I made poor decisions. I couldn't stop. I didn't know why. I would sit in the biomed library at Penn, reading paper after paper, trying to understand my own behavior. Probably the only dude on the street who was sitting in the biomed library in the bathroom shooting a bag of heroin and then going back and reading PubMed to figure out what was wrong with me. Welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery, a podcast for healthcare practitioners interested in substance use disorder, harm reduction, and recovery from addiction. Our hope is to provide education and support for those struggling in silence, recovering, and those who care for patients who suffer with substance use disorder. For more resources, please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com or follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. And now, the hosts of Health Professionals in Recovery, Sean Fogler and Bill Kinkle. All right. Welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery. I'm Sean Fogler. And I'm Bill Kinkle. And today we have actually a really exciting show, something a little bit different. Uh, Bill went to Drexel College of Medicine here in Philadelphia and spoke to the first year medical students uh, about his story and uh, really wove in some really interesting um, stuff about it, you know, substance use disorders, about harm reduction, about the history um, and stigma and language and so many important things that we always try and touch on in our show. And uh, without further ado, here we go. So hi, thanks for having me come over and beat your ear for an hour or so about a short um, sort of an abbreviated biography, just some key points in my life that I think are really important for you is people were in training to be doctors. Um, so yeah, my name is Bill Kinkle and I'm a, a paramedic and a nurse. I'm also a person in sustained recovery from opioid use disorder. And yep, rising up, yeah. And I'm someone that cares really deeply uh, about people who have struggled with substance use, uh, people who use drugs, um, because they're very different classes of people. Just because you use drugs doesn't mean you have a substance use disorder. Uh, but I think we like to pigeonhole them into the same category. But something that I care very deeply about, and I cared very deeply also about why we think about them differently. And my experiences through 20 plus years uh, in healthcare. But what I think, why I think. It's so critically important, and one of the things that I think is most encouraging is one that you have somebody come in here talking about it in your fifth week of medical school. Um, that did not happen for me. Uh, also, just the way you started, when I was a paramedic student and a nursing student, uh, we didn't have grounding exercises. Uh, we didn't do mindfulness techniques. That just wasn't something that we did. Um, and I made the mistake the other day of listening to too much uh, old school hip hop on the way over. So Tupac wasn't really good for me to come in here and try to get grounded. So I took a break on the way over today. So I wasn't so out of control. But uh, I think it, it, it does matter. I think it's going to matter through your training if you continue things like this. I think it's going to matter the way that you treat and care for patients because that's something I didn't have. It was go, go, go all the time. Uh, you're almost treated as if you were superhuman, that you, um, the expectation that's on you is very different than the expectation you're gonna have on your patients and the expectation that the general public has on the general public. And I don't necessarily think that's very fair. And so my career, I started when I was very young. Uh, I was a paramedic at 19. I went into healthcare right, outside of high, right out of high school. I went and became a nurse's aide. 
an EMT and then immediately into paramedic training, paramedic at 19. And so at the age of 19, uh, I, had, I wasn't fully mature yet. Um, and I was charged with this task of caring for critically ill people as an independent practitioner in the field. And so I was making decisions that uh, sometimes ended uh, in the end of the person's life, and not because of mistakes on my own, but just the limitations of what I had technologically at the time, the limitations of medicine, and just the severity of illness. But what I didn't have also was any outlet to talk about that. Being a paramedic at 19, I was in a firehouse, and firehouse is probably one of the most uh, testosterone-rich environments that you can be in. And so coming back after a rough call and talking about your feelings just wasn't something that we did, and that was one way to ensure that I would probably lose my job relatively quickly. So I had to figure out how to manage these things. And then from the street, I went into the ER, and I became a nurse, and I worked at the University of Penn in the ER for over a decade. And in the ER, you know, we're on the street, I would have one or two calls a day, three maybe, if it was busy. Just I worked in the suburbs, it wasn't too bad. But in a big academic medical center like Penn, you're seeing death all the time. You're seeing all the things that, the worst things that life has to bring and the most horrific things are part of your normal day. And so a normal day at Penn would be 15, 16 year old kid comes in with multiple gunshot wounds and he's a little bit alive when he comes in and you're working frantically with the rest of the team doing everything that you can, putting every ounce of mental effort to think through what's going on. You're, you're trying to coordinate with the team. You're relying on your technical expertise. And in the midst of the resuscitation, the kid grabs your hand, looks at you, and takes his last, last breath and dies. And then it doesn't stop there for you. Part of my job was to clean up the body, make sure they are presentable, go with the team to the waiting room, talk to the family, and explain that we did everything that we could, but I'm sorry, but your son is, is dead. And then you bring them back and allow them to grieve. And then you have to package the body and deliver it to the morgue. And then immediately come back and possibly do it again and again and again for the rest of your 13-hour shift, 40 hours a week, 168 hours you know, a week. And you do this for years. And this compounds and compounds and compounds in this environment that's just filled with so much destruction and despair. And so that, that's kind of what my life was. And, and I reveled in it, I loved it, but at the same time, I don't think I realized uh, how devastating it was for me from a mental health standpoint and how that would set up a vulnerability uh, for me that we'll talk about soon. But I was very active um, in academic medicine, being part of writing papers and books and teaching a lot of classes. I was lecturing a lot on the national and international circuit. I was very, very active trying to advance. I had a particular interest in airway management. Uh, but then one day in 2004, I was visited by this guy here. And not FDR, though. Um, I mean the, the kidney stone in the top. But there was this one time when I took too much acid and I had this horrible argument with Teddy Roosevelt about the National Park Service. <laughs> That's probably for a different type of lecture. But anyway, when I had this kidney stone, I was prescribed Percocet. And this was my first experience with opioids. And I remember when I took it, it was life-changing for me. Um, the euphoria was OK. But there was something about just feeling very connected with the world and just not so tense. I just felt really good. And so what I did is I decided the kidney stone's pretty bad, but I'm not going to take this pain medicine for that because this stuff's just 
too good. I need it for when I'm going out like to a concert or camping or some type of social activity. So I had a completely appropriate prescription for my illness that I used inappropriately um, because it made me feel more comfortable socially. But when it was gone, it was gone. And uh, I, didn't, that, I didn't develop a substance use disorder from it. It was just kind of gone and that was it. But then in 2008, about four or so years later, I was over in Australia with my friend, this ER doc who I did a lot of airway work with, and we were doing a series of uh, lectures on airway management for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And I returned from this trip, and my wife at the time, when I came home, she's like, you know, I'm just not really into the marriage thing, so I'm just kind of going to take off. And I didn't really know how to handle that. Uh, at that point in my life, I don't think I had ever experienced failure, and I viewed that as a failure on my part. And I became very depressed, but I didn't know that I was depressed as the problem. Um, I just knew something wasn't right. I wasn't functioning right at work. I couldn't think straight. I wasn't as driven as I normally would, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And so one night when I was in the ICU, I went, I was working in the ICU, I went home with some Dilaudid in my pocket. Because in the ICU, you take a vial that has like 10 milligrams, and you would dose somebody and put it in your pocket, and then you give them another dose later. And back then, there wasn't as tight of restrictions uh, on medications as there is now. But anyway, I went home with some in my pocket that I forgot to waste. And I was in the basement of my house, depressed, and I thought, oh, let me try it and see, see what all the hubbub uh, is about. And it was magnificent. Uh, again, the euphoria was nice, like that was cool, you know, to feel warm and fuzzy. But for me, my emotions were immediately neutralized, that I wasn't sad anymore, but I wasn't happy either. I just felt, I just felt functional, and I felt like I could at least get one foot in front of the other in a way that I hadn't been able to with my untreated, undiagnosed depression. Anyway, this quickly, quickly led to an everyday thing. Within a month, I, I found out, I was like, oh, look at this. Dilaudid and heroin are kind of close chemically and affect the body the same way. Maybe I should try heroin. Again, I probably knew, and you would think that, didn't you know better? I hear that all the time, and of course I did. Uh, of course I knew that probably going out and getting a bag of heroin and injecting it at myself probably wasn't the best career move at the time. But what people don't realize is that at the point that I was doing this is my depression was so bad and I hated myself so bad that I covered the mirrors in my house because I couldn't look at myself in the mirror anymore. And for me, I would look at my gun that I used to own every night and think, I think I might put this in my mouth and pull the trigger. So it was either push the plunger of heroin and allow me to breathe, as ironic as that sounds, but to breathe and to step forward and try to get to the next day or kill myself. And that's behind a lot of people who use drugs is that their emotional pain is so severe that they'll take the negative consequences and risk that come with drug use. And so anyway, it was only about six months later that I ended up here at this place. So I, within six months, I went from touring the world, speaking, working at a high level academic medical center, had a relatively respected career, to living in an abandoned house in Kensington. And this is what it looked like. This isn't an exact photo. That building's actually gone now. But this was actually the house that I grew up in. I spent a large majority of my time in this home when I was a kid that was now an abandoned house in Kensington. And I was in the basement of the house one day, and I found photographs of my family from the 70s with, of me as a baby on the floor in the rubble. And that was kind of, that was the point that it really hit me of how far I'd come in such a short amount of time. 
And so this was sort of what I was thinking. Like, how did that happen? And then as time went on, I started to think, well, why did that happen? And then the question that, that, I, that really plagues me now, that I spend most of my days thinking about, is did it need to happen the way it did? Did everything have to progress so fast and so far? Like, what interventions could have been done at different times that may have prevented me from ending up homeless on the street, in jail, and all those things that, that, that come with it? And I found that there are some things that could have happened. What I found is that most people knew that something wasn't right. And there were a couple close friends who did reach out and try to get me help, but it was always in fear of you can't let anybody find out because you'll lose your license, you'll lose your job, you'll lose this, you'll lose that. So let's try and keep it under the radar. When I left the intensive care unit to go back to the emergency department, I sat with the nurse manager and I was in active addiction at the time. And he looked at me and he said, Bill, I'm just gonna give you this advice. Protect your license and then let me go. And I just think if someone maybe would have talked to me about professional help, if someone maybe would have gotten me plugged in to one of the monitoring programs, I may have gotten resources sooner rather than later. And so this is the question, did it need to happen this way? And so I've thought a lot about vulnerability and what, what is it and why did this happen to me? How at 34, like if we talk about social determinants of health, right? Like I was successful, I grew up in a, in a, in a middle class blue collar family, I had two parents, Never had to worry about food in the house. Obviously still don't. Um, but you know, I, I were eco economically relatively secure. I didn't have all these problems. I, if you were to project that out and, and look at the trajectory of my life, you wouldn't think that I would have ended up in an abandoned house doing heroin at 34. You would think I'm slated for success. And so what is it that, that made me vulnerable? Um, the other thing that I find interesting is that looking at social determinants and looking at all the things that, that we can kind of pinpoint who's gonna have health issues and who isn't, along with other issues, is that once, we start, once you start removing those things, how there's this cascade that they all go down like dominoes. Like for me in particular, I suffered from a highly stigmatized disorder that I was looked at very differently, so I lost my career really quickly. Money was gone. Now I'm digging in trash cans for trying to find something to eat and thinking that that's okay and normal because that's what I had to do to survive. So I kind of lost all the protective things that I grew up having, in large part because I suffered from a very stigmatized disease. But on top of that, um, I was sexually assaulted when I was about six years old. So I have this, you know, I had some adverse childhood experiences. And like I talked about at 19, I was a paramedic and for 20 years almost, I was heavily involved in seeing people die on a regular basis. I mean, I worked teaching a course in a cadaver lab one weekend a month for 10 years where we cut cadavers open. And so death was just very much a part of my life. And for whatever reason, I'm the type of person that uh, I had found it very difficult to leave the job at the job. Uh, I just wasn't someone that could turn it off. And um, I find that this is pretty common among people who have opioid use disorders. For some reason, we're just these really weird, exquisitely tender people and very sensitive to the pain of others around us. And my problem a lot is that I really can't find the dividing line between where the pain of someone else stops and my pain begins. A lot of time, that's a very blurred area for me. And so I take on a lot of pain that's probably not mine to take on and probably not a very nice thing for me to do to somebody else. Um, but what I found is that 
I suffered from compassion, compassion fatigue. And I've only really started looking into this over the past six months, and I'm just blown away that this has been around for, since the early 80s. People have been looking at this. The idea is that people who are around other folks who suffer horrific trauma, like counselors and doctors and nurses, sometimes we can suffer from an anxiety disorder experiencing their trauma. And that's what happened to me. I, I have nightmares at times about horrific things that happen to other people. I remember their names. I could tell you details about what happened when I was experiencing it. It's very different than burnout. I heard, heard a ton about burnout when I was a student, but I never heard anything about compassion fatigue. And those are two very, very different things. You know, burnout has to do with increased workload. It has to do with institutional stress. It has to do with giving of yourself all the time and feeling like the tank is empty. And I even think that the whole idea that we call it burnout is just another way to systemically blame you for a systemic problem. Um, and we don't do enough to fix that. But I wish I would have heard about comp compassion fatigue and could have developed self-care earlier. And on top of that, there's uh, some genetic component. I have a long history of substance use in my family. And I'm not really even sure how that plays in. But these are things that increased my vulnerability. It didn't cause me to have a problem with drugs. But when I reached a certain threshold of mental and emotional pain, they certainly played a part. As soon as I went into treatment for the first time, I heard about how it's a disease. Your disease, your disease, your disease. And I was like, that's insane. It's a choice. I made a decision to go use heroin. It was a terrible choice. I'm a bad person. How do I not be a bad person? And I couldn't understand this whole disease concept. Um, but I think it certainly fits within uh, the, frame, the disease concept framing. But a lot of the way that we've historically talked about it is it's about morality. And what I find particularly fascinating is that if you suggest that addiction is a disease to people, it's an immediate argument that people already have their guard up and want to fight against it. And it's the only illness that I know of that we do that with. No other illness do we that with the starting point is arguing whether it's a legitimate illness or not. And I think that's how stigma works. But I'm so much more interested in what is behind that. Why do people get so bent out of shape and so angry when we suggest that people with substance use disorders are actually suffering? And I don't think there's a way that we could talk about stigma without talking about history of our country and how we have historically looked at drugs, people who use drugs, addiction, and all those kinds of things. And I'm not going to give a whole history, but you could spend a couple days digging into all this. But these are just some highlights. And one would be the Harrison Act, which is the one that sort of really drew the line and set up regulations around opium and cocaine at the time. Then the Volstead Act is when we decided alcohol should be prohibited. And fascinatingly enough, there's a lot that we can learn about the era of prohibition that parallels what we're seeing right now with opioid overdose, is that the reason that people die, the reason that I get phone calls every day about friends who are now dead who weren't yesterday, is not because of Purdue Pharma right now. The reason that they're dying is because the supply on the street is contaminated with other things and there's no regulation. So when you buy a bag, you have no idea what you're getting and you have no idea the potency. It's not the same if you have a headache and you go to the pharmacy and get some Tylenol, you know exactly how much is there. Um, and the same thing happened during alcohol prohibition, that as soon as it was outlawed, people started cutting their booze with turpentine and all kinds of things and tens of thousands of people died as a result of adulteration. And so I just, I think it's disgustingly fascinating that we're doing it again and blaming other people for it. But anyway, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was 
brought into place in 1930. Harry Enslinger was the first drug czar. We'll talk about him in a minute and his escapades. Uh, that they later became the DEA. And then the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, which was largely based on xenophobia. I mean, the whole, even the word marijuana is a disgusting word. They chose this word to paint Mexican immigrants in a certain way, and that's the reason why we did this. Um, and then the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act is where we started scheduling things. So all these things are kind of floating under the water over years. And then because of various political and, and racist reasons, in the 60s, we really ramped up this war on drugs with Nixon, and we started declaring war. We developed D.A.R.E. programs and Just Say No, which is how I grew up with Just Say No, Just, you know, just Say No. Uh, there was all kinds of propaganda things like Reefer Madness that were put out to paint people who used drugs in a certain light. And we're continuing now today with our current um, commander in chief supporting the death penalty, penalty, penalty for drug dealers, uh, which depending how you would look at it, I could have been labeled a drug dealer because I had friends that we all put our money together with and I went and bought the drugs and then came back and distributed to all of us for us to use. And if one of them died from an overdose today, in the county that I live in, Montgomery County, I could easily get a 20-year sentence for drug-induced homicide, which is flat-out disgusting, to be honest with you. But anyway, this is Harry Anslinger, again, the first drug czar. This is what was behind drug policy. This is a, a quote from him. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the United States, and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz and swing, result from marijuana usage. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. And there is a bazillion more quotes from this guy saying things like this. But how does that play out? I think there is a clear line of how that plays out in our country. And so I went and I spent probably way too many hours than I needed to looking through old episodes of Cops and Dope and Live PD and all these shows. And what I found is more times, pretty much all the time, actually, whenever they were going to show. So the other thing you have to keep in mind is that these shows typically are shown through the lens of law enforcement. And that's very, very important. And so we've got these ultra-militarized local police departments. You've got every person who's selling drugs. Most of them at the time, they're black. Some, if it's marijuana or something, they're going to show Hispanic folks. But these are some shops from Cops, Drugs, Inc., and then you get to intervention, where we're trying to help these people. And it's primarily white people. And I think this is really important, especially for you. Because when you go to meet someone who suffers from a substance use disorder, I want you to think about, immediately check yourself. What are you thinking? What, are your, what type of presuppositions do you already have about these people and why? I think television and media is a huge reason. So this is spanning from 1989 to 2016. Original episodes in the first series of Cops all the way to today, same exact thing. Arresting people of color, criminalizing it, demonizing people of color. And you've been beat with this for, well, I mean, you guys are young, but America has been beat with this for going on four decades now of these imaging images all the time to make you think about certain classes of people and certain races of people in a negative fashion, even film. So if you look at films, you have things like Boys in the Hood, Menace to Society, New Jack City, all young African-American males who are the criminals and bad people, is what you would hear. But then you look about people who use drugs, and it's always these white people. And even these images, like 
you know, you got Leonardo DiCaprio there, you know, looking at you super somber, and you're supposed to feel bad for him, and panic and you know, park, and clean and sober. It's all white people who are getting better. And I'll tell you, I spend every day on the streets hanging out with people. It ain't all white people at all who are suffering from this disorder. Um, and then American Heroin Addicts, I don't even know what the hell this movie was about, but the, the imaging was insane that the way that we look at opioids is this suburban nice house, started with the pills and then started using a gigantic monster needle like that, which is I've never seen. <laughs> and same thing with this, like these, the people who make these images have never done drugs clearly because I've never had a mound like that in the top at all. I've never used a syringe that big. I've never seen pills with a lot of these colors. And I wish I had a rail like that to do when I was snorting coke because I've never, it's like Scarface kind of stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so people that make this stuff, same thing as the smack epidemic. You know, first of all, so quick story. First time I went to buy heroin, I went on the street. I was reading online about it. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go buy some heroin. So I had seen the Panic in Needle Park from 1973. And so I went down to Kensington and talked to some people and said, hi, I'd like to buy some smack. And they said, where the hell did you come from? Like, the 70s? Like, nobody calls it smack. It's dope now. Take it for that if you want. I was like, well, yeah, I would like some of that then, please. Yes, some of your dope. <laughs> yeah, and then they gave it to me. And I was like, oh, what do I do with this? And so they had to show me how to use it. And that's how inexperienced I was at the time. But so nobody calls it smack. It's ridiculous to even put an article. And then you've got fear tactics like the one at the bottom. And I'm sure that you've all seen this, showing the difference between carfentanil, fentanyl, and heroin. And what I'm not arguing is I'm not arguing that there's a difference in the potency, because there absolutely is. And this is a good illustration of potency. But it's rarely used in that fashion. What it's usually used in is something to invoke fear in you. So much so that I recently talked to a woman who was terrified to go to her local grocery store because she was afraid that by her touching the cart, someone before her might have touched fentanyl and put it on there, and she was going to touch it and overdose and die, which you can't do, even though you hear it in the media all the time. The American College of Medical Toxicology and toxicology experts and ER docs have debunked this over and over again. You can't touch. You can't overdose from touching it. If that's the case, every stash house that I've been in, everybody would be dead. And they're not. They're partying. <laughs> but here's how this plays out. Is that 60 minutes, you've got um, the attorney, U.S. attorney from Ohio, giving this talk with the host of 60 Minutes, and the host saying, oh, man, so if you touch this, uh, it could kill you? And the U.S. attorney, yeah. There's a re and you have to see the clip to get the full experience. But he's like, yeah, there's a reason we have a medic standing by, Scott. And that's because an overdose is, unfortunately, it's something that we have to be prepared for, even when dealing with an evidence bag. 100% not true. But the reason it's on here is to make you scared of people and to treat them differently or just ignore them completely. And this is how it plays out in, in a, just a ridiculous fashion. Headlines like this, fentanyl bust, enough to kill 7 billion people or 92% of the world. I don't know how many people read, you know, tweaktown.com. <laughs> but this is how this stuff plays out. And the reason I think it's important is because I, I think it does matter. It, it really changes the way we think. And the way that it looks right now like, to me, it's a clear line back to Harry Anslinger. So when, again, nation's first drug czar, he openly praised Judy Garland for her recovery, openly saying, so glad for you. Great job, Judy Garland. 
you know, the girl from Wizard of Oz. I don't even know if you've seen that. You guys are really young. But anyway, very well known and very white. And then you have Billie Holiday, who openly sung about racist America and talked about smoking cannabis. At the same time that this man was praising Judy Garland for her recovery, he had a task force, and their job was to hunt down Billie Holiday and prosecute her at the same time for the exact same thing. And so if you fast forward, look at, the, at how we responded to crack in the 80s and the 90s. You got the president holding boulders of crack. Again, I didn't smoke a lot of crack in a couple times here and there. It wasn't really my thing. But I never had rocks like that, ever. Like these, you just don't see things like that on the street. And then it turns out that his whole premise was, we just bought this in front of the White House. Somebody was selling crack on the street in front of the White House. Turns out the boy who sold it was a high school senior that was selling it across town. And the DEA lured him to the front of the White House. Well documented. Just so that they could have the story to have a person of color on the front page of the news look at what these people are doing. And then all the imaging around crack has to do with people breaking into the houses of people of color, always dilapidated, trying to show them as broken families, all myths to perpetuate a certain narrative. But then, if you look now at how we respond to opioids, and again, think about Judy Garland versus Billie Holiday and how that would play out. This is what we do. Police chief offers help for drug addicts. Big sign in front of the police department, addicted, come in and ask for help. The only reason that we really care, and probably the only reason that I'm standing here, and it's kind of bizarre even that you have a white guy standing here, because it should be one of my friends, my friend Devin, who's a person of color. He's the one that should really be talking to you about this at this point. So we still have room to go. But the reason that I'm here is because white kids started dying. And we care more about white people as a society in general. I don't mean that individually. But as a society, these things have really impacted drug policy and in and played itself out in healthcare. This is a recent ad for Narcan spray. And you know, I'm friends with the Narcan people. They're really good people. I just don't think they're aware of privilege and they're not aware of the imagery that they put. But the, these are screenshots from the video, and you have to Google it when you go home, the Narcan. Like, this is pretty ridiculous. It really promotes this accidental, I became accidentally addicted narrative, um, this narrative that my kid sprained his ankle playing field hockey, and then they gave him a little Percocet, and next thing you know, he was shooting heroin and died. And that's a very, very small, small percent of the people that became, uh, had an issue with substance use disorder or dying out on the street right now. But this commercial goes on that this dad, who's probably the whitest white guy I've ever seen, in a brightly lit room, goes into the pharmacy, he's smiling and happily gets his Narcan, and he comes home and puts it in his medicine cabinet, comes down and is talking to his son, and they're having this great moment, but it's clearly a very suburban, wealthy home. It's, and the same thing when you look at images of how we care for people who struggle with opioid use disorder. It's in this very empathetic, compassionate way. It's very different than we did 20 years ago with crack cocaine, very different. And even, I have to be really careful about how I tell my story, that I wasn't some, oh, I had a kidney stone, and I was given Percocet. I didn't know what it would do to me, you know, because that's, it's total BS, to be honest with you. I have to be honest that I used it inappropriately. I have to be honest about all the factors that made my recovery successful, that there's a lot of privilege that I have uh, that led to my recovery. 
you know, that if I was a person of color, I'm not sure that I'd be in recovery. Can't say for sure, but I'm not. I don't know that I would be because there were a lot of advantages that I had that other people, my friends don't have. But anyway, all that stuff that I just showed you is the reason why if you go to Google and type in drug addict, these are the images that you're gonna see. And the image that you probably won't see is this one. But that's how a lot of people would have described me. So they called me, mentioned how it's that a lot of drugs on the streets are that's a really long um, conversation. Uh, there's micro macro level things, and that's an advocacy. I talk about a lot about policy and how to be more active. But on the ground level, there's things that we can do: harm reduction, harm reduction, harm reduction, harm reduction is the big thing. Making sure that we have syringe programs for people, making sure people have access to clean syringes. It, we've got to take the, the morality nonsense and our opinion nonsense and check it at the door. These are public health initiatives that, that work. They reduce disease, they reduce illness, they reduce death. Through local syringe programs, you can get fentanyl test strips to test your drugs. It's been shown that you know, although everything has fentanyl in it right now, but what, it's, what has been shown is that people who access these services get further plugged into other services. So having them use fentanyl test strips, they get plugged into other things and other public health initiatives like primary care. Um, the organization that I work for is called uh, Pathways to Housing. Should have said in the beginning that these are, these my opinions don't necessarily represent my employer. But I work for an organization called Pathways to Housing and they're a, uh, essentially a harm reduction agency. Uh, they operate on, the, on a housing first model, meaning that we get people who experience chronic homelessness into housing with no requirements. You can still be in active use. You don't have to agree to be in treatment. You don't even have to seek treatment. But we believe that housing is a fundamental human right and that you can't start anything until you house people. And so we bring them in. And what we've found is that people generally start to do a lot better by bringing them in, giving them a house, furnish it. They get to pick where they want to live. And then we surround them with wraparound services. So harm reduction is a big one. Naloxone access making sure that everybody, you know, that it should essentially rain naloxone, is what my friend Devin says, that everybody should have it, everybody should carry it. My kids know how to administer naloxone, and they're four and five. Uh, it's just something that we should have in all of our first aid kits. So those are the, the, the small to mid-range. On the bigger level, we need a lot of massive policy change. Uh, my personal opinion is that we should legalize and start to come up with regulation plans for these things to ensure safety. You will never stop people from using drugs but we can, and I think that we have a responsibility to make things that people engage in safe, just like we do with alcohol. When you go to the bar and the, and the bottle says 100 proof, you know that's what's in there and you know it's relatively safe. Essentially, a bar is a safe, safe using site. And so that's another thing. I think safe injection sites have been proven over and over again, and I have not heard one argument yet against safe injection sites that does not have to do with underlying moral reasoning. Um, scientifically, they work. And to be honest with you, like I said, this isn't just a hypothetical. This isn't just some theoretical thing for me that a lot of people are dying. I literally have to watch my friends die. I literally, yesterday I spent time with a friend of mine talking about how the barriers that he's experiencing on the street are the exact same barriers that I experienced 10 years ago and throughout my course of dealing with addiction. He's dealing with the same things. We haven't made any progress yet in making 
treatment better, defining what the hell really treatment is, because right now it's a crapshoot what you're going to get if it's evidence-based or not, making it accessible to everybody when they need it, when they want it, not you go to an assessment center and wait there for three days and the staff waits for you to get sick enough that you can't take it anymore and leave to go use and then you overdose and die. That's the reality on the street. And I sat with a guy yesterday for hours telling me how he just doesn't want to go to a place because when he leaves, they're going to dump him back out on the street and he's going to be homeless again. And then he left and I had to spend all night sitting with my wife worrying that if my friend is still alive because of the contaminated supply. And so when I say things like legalization of drugs or suggesting prescription heroin or prescription hydromorphone, to a lot of you that might seem like some radically crazy leftist idea, uh, but it's not. Uh, my friend, again, my friend Devin Reeves, who's a very big advocate in the city and the state, he said, I know it sounds crazy, but it's not. It's just, it's very pragmatic. When, it, when you think about lives and human lives that are lost, that's the most bang for the buck, is to at least give them a safe place to use so that if they overdose, they can be revived and give them a safe supply and then provide all kinds of other support and wraparound services surrounding the places where they use so that we can attempt to address the underlying issues. So many policies have to do with the drug itself. We always want to demonize because we love we love to have a culprit, right? Everybody wants the El Chapo. That's how we operate. But none of us want to sit there and say, no, we're going to have to invest a lot of time to understand these problems and all the things that orbit around the problem, like all the social issues, social determinants of health, poverty, racism, xenophobia, all the things that we do, all the things that affect drug use that most drug treatment programs don't address. They just say, go to a meeting and don't use ever again. And that doesn't work. I don't, I've never met anyone, not to say they don't exist, but I've never met anyone who habitually uses drugs and has developed a substance use disorder that does not have a history of serious trauma, not one. So longer answer than I expected to give, but those are some things that I, that I think about that would work. So I mean, stigma and medicine, this is, again, I, I sort of touched on this a little bit, but I, because of all the things that I sort of put out there in the beginning, all the misconceptions I had about drug use, I was very, very, very reluctant to seek any kind of help. I wanted to keep quiet. I was so ashamed of what was going on. I thought I made poor decisions. I couldn't stop. I didn't know why. I would sit in the biomed library at Penn, reading paper after paper, trying to understand my own behavior. Like, how twisted is that? And nerdy at the same time. And probably the only dude on the street who was sitting in the biomed library in the bathroom shooting a bag of heroin and then going back and reading PubMed to figure out what was wrong with me. <laughs> but, you know, and most of addiction treatment is still in the, in the dark ages. And like I just said, it's focused on the substance, not the problem. And that's a big problem. I was coming from 15 years at the time in medicine and going into drug treatment was a shocking experience for me that the very first thing I was handed when I walked through the door was a prayer that I had to memorize because we prayed after every group. And I, at the time, I was like, I'm an atheist. I don't do the God thing. Like, and how does this work? And so anyway, it's, 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 I found that it's really rare to find clinicians, you know, doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, nurse, anybody who really understands uh, how addiction works, generally the progression of it. And even more rare is someone who understands what recovery is. If you ask people about recovery. Like for me, I'm really big on defining what we're talking about. Like if we're going to talk about when we say treatment, I want to know what you mean by that because it's a very ambiguous, nebulous, nebulous, goofy thing right now. It could, could mean a million things. It could mean petting horses. I went to a place where that was part of therapy is go out and pet the horses and I don't like horses. <laughs> um, 
So I was traumatized, thinking the thing was going to kick me because I saw so many equestrian accidents at, at Penn. You know what I mean? And so anyway, same thing with recovery. When we say I'm in recovery, what does that mean? Because I think it's a very individually defined term, but typically and historically, uh, we've defined recovery as I have 372 days sober today. And okay, that tells you the last time I may have used whatever particular substance it is, but it doesn't tell you anything about the quality of my life, my overall state of wellness. And so when I talk about me being in recovery, I talk about, for me, that means my life isn't ruled by drug use. Uh, I'm a functional, productive member of society. I serve my community. I'm a good father. My kids aren't afraid that when I put them down at night, they're not afraid that uh, I'm not going to be there in the morning. They don't worry about that anymore. To, they know that I'm going to be home. Like those are, those are very subjective things, but important things to give you a better picture of wellness. And I'm very plugged in. And if you really want to see how stigma plays out, just look at how we treat our own. You can always do this in medicine. If you want to know how people really feel about things, look what happens when a doc or a nurse gets sick. And so for me, when I finally did I decide I want to get my license back. So my license is currently suspended. I have another year to go in this program until I'm up for reinstatement. And the reason that it's been so long since I've practiced is because I just didn't want to do this program. Uh, and not because, not in, in some fighting back against the system way, but because I thought that it would be detrimental to my health to do what they required. Turns out I was right, by the way, just saying. Um, but. We, so me having an opioid use disorder, current standard of care, the gold standard for opioid use disorder today is medication, uh, what some people say MET, medication-assisted treatment, but that in itself is stigmatizing. It's freaking medication, you know what I mean? You don't say that for hypertension or other things. You get medication, so buprenorphine, uh, methadone, naltrexone to a lesser extent. But for healthcare professionals, depending on what state you're in, you're either flat out prohibited from taking buprenorphine or methadone, or it's highly restricted and you have a lot of hurdles to go through, and that was my case. So I was chasing abstinence only, and I was using 20 plus bags of opioids a day. Not heroin, because it's not heroin, it's all kinds of fentanyl stuff, but I was using a lot a day, and I was trying to just be abstinent because I wanted my license back. And what that led to is 16 inpatient admissions over an 18 month period for me. And 15 out of those 16, I never made it more than three hours post-discharge before I used again, and about half of those 15 times, so seven or eight times, uh, I overdosed, and my wife had to come home and find me unconscious on the floor and resuscitate me or wake me up to live. And all that could have been avoided if I could have just been put on buprenorphine in the beginning, but I couldn't because I wanted to continue to practice and be a nurse. I ended up getting on Vivitrol, but I still wrestled really hard with unmanageable cravings. And this issue is finally being spoken about. There was just an article in the New England Journal about three weeks ago now saying that we need to start practicing what we preach. And there's probably going to be some more discussion about this in the future that it's, it's, it's just the ultimate expression of absurdity for a physician to all day advocate for their patient to be on a medication to decrease their mortality by 50%. In the, so they want to put on this medication so they don't die and then potentially get better. But that same physician comes down with the same disorder and cannot get the same treatment. That's absurdity and, and the ultimate of hypocrisy. So this is what life looks like in one of these programs. So it's a three to six year program, depending what state and your level. 
My initial requirements were one year of treatment. That included full 30-day inpatient, followed by three weeks of partial hospitalization, and then tons of group therapy, which was really just organized 12-step meetings, to be honest. I check in daily for random drug screens, and when I have to go for them, there's a high cost associated with them, and it's all out of pocket. None of this is covered by insurance. For me in particular, when I was incarcerated for a drug-related offense, and I was being held actually on a $100 bail that I couldn't afford in the jail system, I was raped in jail. And so when I go for these drug tests, the way that you're treated is it's very similar to being in prison, that I have to take off all excess clothing. The clothing that I have on, my pockets are checked. They go in, they put colored dye into the toilet to make sure I don't take the toilet water. Then they shut the water supply off to the room, and then someone has to physically stand there and stare at my penis as I urinate into a cup to make sure that I'm not you know, passing off a Mickey or something as a fake sample. And so for the first couple of months, I couldn't figure out why I felt so crappy every time I left. And it wasn't until I was talking to my wife, who's a social worker and a therapist and way more insightful than I am. She's like, you think maybe it has something to do with you know, you being raped and being in prison. And I was like, oh, it does. So I think the way, and really the underlying, what the underlying thing is that we're saying is you're dishonest. You're a drug user, you're dishonest. We can't trust you, so we need to employ all these things to make sure that you're being honest, which is ridiculous that the presupposition is dishonesty, but that's typically how we've historically thought about people who use drugs and continue to. And then I was initially required to do 90 meet, 90 12-step meetings in 90 days, so three months of meetings every day, and now I have to do three meetings a week for the next bazillion years. And these meetings, this is what it looks like when I get selected on my little app, and then if I go for a meeting, it's tracked via GPS, and this is just an image of the GPS tracking so that the board, the monitoring agency through the Board of Nursing knows and can verify where I was and for how long, and then someone signs my phone um, at this anonymous meeting. And so I go, I do see an addictions medicine doc. This is us in the bottom corner, just chit-chatting. And we spend a lot of time talking about substance use disorders and stigma and how can we push back and fight against it. But she's really wonderful. Um, this is the form that I submit every month. This is what it looks like to explain what I'm doing. And I generally am very detailed about things that I'm doing that are really helpful for my recovery, but things that aren't so helpful, like forcing me to go to a support group. Sort of negates the whole point of a support group, right, to say you have to go. And it can also be detrimental to the rest of the people who want to be there. And so there's other things, like therapy would probably be a good idea for you know a guy like me that was raped and stuff like that. I don't know. But then you know, I, I explain a lot about the urines and why I think they're, they're rough. And I think what I do is I try to suggest potentially working in the future with them to develop uh, monitoring programs, PHPs, physician health programs that could take you in and develop a tailored recovery plan for the individual. Because I think the reason that we do all this is because of, of public safety, right? We want to make sure that you're not impaired. We want to make sure that you're safe for the general public and that they feel comfortable. But I think the best way to make a physician or a nurse or any other medical professional the safest is to make sure that they're healthy and well on top of making sure that they're drug-free and, and in treatment and all those things. But I would really like to see us move more towards a path of overall wellness. Uh, there's a lot of shame that has to do with it. This is all public record. Somebody on Twitter was trolling me and post, dug this up and posted this on Twitter. 
that I was using heroin to cope with my divorce. I don't see any reason why these, this information should be on the Board of Nursing's website about me. I don't see how that's helpful in encouraging me to overcome a highly stigmatized illness. And so, yeah, these are the things that I talked about. One of the things is that there's really no culture of recovery in, in medicine. Uh, we, either you're in these programs and it's kept very quiet and you move on and don't say a word about it. Um, we generally don't hire people who are in recovery. I was recently, I recently interviewed for a job at a place that was a non-clinical job, got hired, and in the pre-employment physical, told them about my history of opioid use disorder, and they rescinded the offer because they had concerns about trustworthiness, even though I, the reason they knew is because I told them. And this is at a major academic medical center here in Philly that this happened last year, so it's not 20 years ago. But I think that, especially because we were a lot more focused on addiction now, uh, what a great resource. Like, how valuable would it be for a patient to walk in to a place that they hate going because of the way they've historically been treated and have the doc say, you know what, I'm in recovery too, and this is what I did to get out of it. There's huge power in that. But we don't create a culture in medicine that it's acceptable to say, I'm in recovery. Like I said, 12-step programs are an unfortunate big part of my life, and that's not because I don't think that they're important. I think 12-step programs are amazing. But there's a, the research is so clear on who they work for that it's a very small subset, and they work for who they work for. If you're someone that you know, has a strong faith and a belief system that works for you, these things could be really great for you. And one of the things about 12 Steps is that there's nowhere in the world that you can go and not find a community of people who are trying to recover or in recovery that can support you. Pretty much anywhere on the globe, you'll find them. And I also think from a history standpoint, I think it's really neat that this was a group that was marginalized by the world and the medical community and said, you know what, screw everybody. We're gonna get together and make ourselves well. I think it's a very humane, beautiful thing for people to do. Um, but it has pretty heavy puritanical roots in it. Uh, if you don't really believe in the God or the spiritual thing, it's very, very difficult to navigate. And I think that's where we have to differentiate between support versus treatment. These are support groups, and they can be very good for you, but it's not treatment. And so me being forced to go to these things, I found it to be really, really difficult. I mean, what I mean by that, and here's the example. So I, I go into treatment, and I've been to over 20 treatment centers over the course of my run with, with substance use disorder. Every single one has been 12-step based, and everyone I walk into, and they say, you have a disease, man. It's a disease, it's not your fault. And then the next sentence is, but you've, you've gotta start believing in a higher power, and you've gotta start praying, man. And you have to start leading a life of penitence. You have to start making amends for all the wrongs that you've done. If you don't turn your life over to this higher power and believe in God, your hope of putting your disease in remission is zero. And so those two things in my mind were very conflicting. How can I have a disease but that disease is solely based on a spiritual solution. And we've done this as a culture for centuries. You know, we used to think that headaches were caused by demons and bad spirits, and we would smash holes in people's heads to let the demons out. We don't do that anymore because modern medicine caught up and we realize that's not what causes a headache. You know, but I think the same thing, it's time for us to start moving forward with addiction medicine. If you, if prayer, and what I'm not saying, as I'm not saying that prayer is not a beneficial activity for people. The research is really clear on that, that if you have a strong belief system, prayer is very valuable 
from a overall wellness and spiritual standpoint, but it's not gonna cure your substance use disorder. Just like if you have breast cancer, we used to pray to make that go away. It made people feel better as, as they died, but it didn't fix their breast cancer. And we need to do the same thing for addiction as far as I'm concerned. This is my boy, Ralph. And what I think is fascinating, and this more just speaks to the overall acceptance of 12-step of programs, is that even in Wreck-It Ralph, even in a movie that I watch with my kids, the opening scene that he is at a 12-step meeting, you know, because Ralph's the bad guy and he decides, I don't want to be bad anymore. But there is even an undertone of stigma in that because he sits in this room saying, I don't want to be bad anymore. He's at the bad and I meeting. And all his bad guy buddies are like, you can't change who you are. And I have heard that over and over and over again for over 10 years in drug treatment. You're once an addict, always an addict. You're never going to change. And that is flat out not true. And there are many people who can testify to that. So anyway, talking about these things that people think you're habitually dishonest. And I think most of the negative behaviors that we experience, because it really comes down to what is it about people who are in addiction that we don't like dealing with? Why is it that when they walk into the clinic or the ER or your office, we go, oh, this dude again, man. Like, what is it that we don't like? And I would say that most of their behaviors can either be explained uh, understanding what's going on in the brain. We can provide really good explanations and then fix it. But I think also a lot of the behaviors are fostered just by misunderstandings about them and really, really bad policy. I hear all the time that people in addiction are liars and thieves. And just because I lied a lot and I stole some stuff when I was using heroin wasn't because I had a substance use problem. It's because of how other people viewed me as someone who used heroin that made me have to do these devious things. And I know it's a very, you know, the distinction's really slim between those, but I think it's critically important because if we don't make that distinction, then we start putting negative properties on people's identity as a human being instead of helping them and understanding the social conditions that foster certain things. And just really quickly, I did have a recurrence of use or what we used to say relapse. Also just want to comment on language and stigmatizing language. We don't say addict anymore. We don't say alcoholic. Uh, we're trying to move towards not saying relapse because of the negative effects of these words. We don't say drug abuse or drug abuser, even though our government agencies still have it in their title, but we're working on that too. But all those things uh, create negative attitude towards people and are stigmatizing terms. But anyway, for me, having two periods in my life that I had this period where I used what got really bad, got into recovery for a couple of years, and then I started using again, I got into recovery, I've been able to look at those two events in my life and find parallels, say, okay, what two things were going on in my life that I decided to start using heroin again? And what I found is that the common denominator for me is untreated depression, that there's apparently some threshold in me that once I reach it, I need my brain screams for relief. But that's been really helpful for me to now be proactive about designing a protection plan for me personally. And so why is all this stuff so important for you guys? And I think because when we're talking about how do you advocate for your patients, it goes back to the micro, macro. There's some things that you can do on the person-to-person -person level that I think are important. And I'll give you uh, a quick example of that. I, I had, was going to have carpal tunnel repair a couple months back, and I went to see the surgeon. And when we sat doing the pre-op uh, assessment, uh, he talked to me about my hypertension. And he said, okay, you have hypertension. What do you want? 
how well is your pressure being maintained? And I was like, pretty good. I'm on 100 or low pressure once a day. These have been my trends over the past year. It's really well controlled. And there was eye contact from the surgeon, wrote it down, shook his head, nodded in agreement, and moved on because he was satisfied. Why? Because he had a very good understanding of what hypertension looks like, how do we treat it, and what it looks like to keep it in control. I felt comfortable as a patient going, okay, he understands hypertension, we can move on. Then we got to opioid use disorder. There was no eye contact. Shuffling around, really uncomfortable. And this is in a clinic that outside they had a big banner that said, we do really great with opioids here. And I'm sitting in the office with the guy and he's like, yeah, so how you doing with this whole, you know, drug thing? And I was like, very good. I'm in recovery for, you know, about this amount of time. This is what my life in recovery looks like. This is the path that I took to enter recovery. These are the medications that I took that I'm no longer on. We should probably talk about post-operative pain management and what that looks like for someone like me. And he goes, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely talk about the you know, opioid thing after surgery. And then we moved on. And I found it fascinating that it wasn't so much, I didn't expect him to understand. I mean, he was a lot, he was older than me. You know what I mean? So I just didn't expect it to be a part of his thing to understand addiction. But what I found really interesting was my internal response, that my trust level, that I was fully, I fully trusted his ability as a surgeon to fix my carpal tunnel. I fully trusted that he understood hypertension, but I had zero faith that he had any concept of my substance use disorder. And then so what that meant for me is I now need to put preventative um, mechanisms in place to protect myself postoperatively because they're not going to. And this is where I think you can make huge strides to advocate for your patients is to learn. You know, and what I mean is just going to a 12-step meeting once is not going to tell you much at all. If anything, it might actually give you a negative impression on how to treat people. But be around people who struggle with this. Be around uh, people in addiction. One of the things that I'm extremely hopeful for, for young folks like you, is that this is different for your generation. When I went to nursing school and when I went to paramedic school, I learned about overdose and I learned about things like this, but the likelihood, the way that it was presented is the likelihood that you're ever gonna see an opioid overdose is about zero, depending where you are. You're not gonna see this kind of stuff. And so for you, how many people in this room have been in some way affected by addiction, not just opioids, anything. Yeah, that's a lot of people. And I think that's gonna drive changes in medicine uh, in the future. And so that's one reason why I'm really hopeful. But I also think it's important for you to understand, since you're gonna see it a lot more, it's on your radar, and we're trying to learn how to treat it differently to start understanding it better. There's nothing better for a patient, particularly someone struggling with addiction, to have someone demonstrate a clear understanding. It just means the world to people like me. Because um, I've only had one physician who I felt comfortable really understood what I was talking about. And so in advocacy, that's the most important thing for you. But if you wanted to do more, and I think that you should do more, is there's ways that you can embrace harm reduction and speak and learn about harm reduction. Be politically active. Understand what's going on uh, in your locality, your state, and at the national level. Be aware of bills. Um, if you're interested in harm reduction, the harm, Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition is a great place to stay up on what's important and who you should be calling for, calling your elected officials about. You should know your elected officials. You should barge in their office and let them know who you are. And 
one of the, I mean, there's a couple reasons, but one, you're going to be doctors. You walk into your representative's office, you show up in Washington with your lab coat on, people listen a lot more than other people. If you're white and you have a lab coat, people are going to listen to you a lot more. And my friends who aren't white are relying on you to do that, that you do have a privilege that they don't have, and to use it to help start tipping the scales a little bit. And if you're not interested in doing that, I would suggest that maybe you should think about not picking up the white coat if you're not going to speak for the underserved. Um, so other things that you can do, um, you know, what I do, I have very, my social media presence is very, um, I'm very specific about using that in ways to advocate and to change people's minds and to be open about my recovery. And uh, talking to local and national media outlets, there's all different levels of advocacy, like I said, from the, patient, the ground level patient all the way up to advocating for policy change. Just what my life sort of looks like is my family. I don't really see myself as the person in recovery. I see my family as a family in recovery, and I frame it that way. Uh, and so our lives kind of evolve. These are, this is my family and I at the recent overdose remembrance walk. This is me chilling with my music buddy over here. These are photos from when I was in active addiction. The one on the, the far right there, you can really tell the difference around this area here that things were different. The one in the middle, I was in active opioid withdrawal right there. And I was with my son at the local urgent care because he was sick. And I post these on social media to explain something that you hear. I try to push back on myths. You hear all the time when people, when people are using drugs, they don't care about anything. They don't care about their kids. They don't care about their family. It's not true. This picture is an exact example of why it's not true, that I was sick as a dog and I couldn't, I couldn't, it was very difficult for me to stop my mind from thinking about drugs to put his needs first, but I did. And I think that needs to be told that we're human and we're suffering and we need help. This is me and my little girl. She was doing my hair, she still does. Um, this is my son, Micah. This is my friend, Dan. Um, Dan, obviously, is dead, he's not, with us anymore, but Dan was a great guy. Dan didn't, did not have access to a lot of the resources that I did. We had a very different way that we grew up in a different family structure. But what is so important about Dan to me is Dan is Micah's biological father. My oldest son we adopted from foster care, and I met Dan in a recovery house, and he died last year. This is Micah signing his name for the first time was at the guest book at his father's funeral. And the reason Dan died is because we all failed him in providing the needs that he needed. I think that's really important. This is the day that we adopted Micah. This is just some advocacy stuff. Like I said, I'm, I'm very vocal about being in recovery because I think that's the only way that we're going to change uh, is what it looks like to realize that there's people sitting right next to you and there's probably people in this room that are in recovery. And I would challenge you that if you feel like you can, because I know it's a big commitment professionally, but if you're a doctor, you're a medical student in recovery, say so. Uh, at the, the, big, the big recovery walk in Philly next Saturday, and I'm going with several other healthcare professionals who are in recovery, a couple docs and nurses, and we're going to actually have a group and advertise that 
we're doctors and we're nurses and we're in recovery too. You know, my kids are going to wear. My daddy's a nurse and he's in recovery because it's a group that's been, we've been non-represented for a long time. And so these are things that I do personally to try to just change public perception about how we look at folks like me. I spend time with elected officials. I already told you about the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition. I volunteer with my local police department, mainly so that they can be around a person in recovery and see that I'm not what you think I am, because I live in the suburbs. Uh, we do this podcast that I started with a, a physician friend of mine that we were in recovery and we realized, man, doesn't anybody else in medicine suffer with this? Because it's really hard to find people. So we started this podcast trying to talk openly about, hey, we're in recovery. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to navigate the state boards. This is what it looks like trying to get back into the workplace at a, in, with such a highly stigmatized illness. And so I already told you my hopes for the future. One, addiction medicine is now its own subspecialty. I think there's going to be great things that come from that being its own legitimate thing, kind of like how emergency medicine was 20 years ago. Um, and we need a culture shift. Um, what you all are experiencing by being around someone in recovery and it being part of your normal culture, I think, is going to have huge changes in the way that you care for patients. <clears throat> and like that exercise in the beginning that you started with, I think is amazing that you're already starting to think about your mental health. It's incorporated into your training. It wasn't for me. And so stress management and how you perform on a job that's the expectations that are going to be placed on you are so incredibly high. And how you deal with that, I think, is going to have a huge effect on you and your patients. And so just the last thing I did want to say before I finish, like this is my contact information if anybody wants to email or call or whatever. Um, but one is you're not immune to this. Any one of you um, could develop a substance use disorder, especially with the high stress, high level job that you're entering. Even your training is just incredibly huge. Uh, I have profound respect for you. The greatest memories of my life and the greatest period in my life is when I worked at Penn and I went and helped train the medical students and train the residents through their years and to watch them grow and to see the commitment that you have. It's not like any other profession. And the job that you're going into is by far, by far, I think, the most noble profession out there. That your job every day is gonna to be to interact with people who most likely it's gonna be the worst experience of their life. And you have the opportunity to meet them and say, hey, let's make it a little bit better. I don't think there's a greater job or a greater responsibility than that. And so I did just want to say that I admire you and thank you for your dedication to your job and thanks for letting me speak to you today. Well, welcome back to Health Professionals in Recovery. That was an amazing hour with, uh, with Bill and um, I loved how he wove his story into so many different um, really facets, you know, of the overdose crisis and substance use disorders and, and all the things that we talk about um, on our show. It was really profound to ask them how many of you have been personally affected by this and have three quarters of the room on both sessions raise their hand. Do you think if when you were in your early or mid-20s and you were a student and somebody like yourself came in and, and told their story – do you think that would have connected with you? Do you think, you know, you would have had a different 
kind of outlook and maybe been more sensitive to some of the the behaviors and the um, the way you were living your life, you know, and how you dealt with your emotions. Do you, do you think it would have been a little bit of a wake up call? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it was such a different time period back then. You know, we're talking early 90s and we just thought differently about addiction back then. We thought differently about drugs. I mean, we were at the height of the crack epidemic where it wasn't even proposed to us that white people might suffer with this. Uh, it was all black people and it was a criminal activity. I mean, there were horrific off-color jokes made in my training, both in paramedic school and nursing school uh, about people who use drugs. Um, and I mean, even early in my career, uh, I mean, there were people that thought that it was funny to, to restrain people who were on methadone and give them two, four, six, eight milligrams of naloxone just to put them into withdrawal to teach them a lesson. And so it was a totally different mindset. These students aren't like that. I mean, they started the, the class with mindfulness exercises. Yeah, Mental that's amazing. Is, yeah, I mean, it blew my mind that yeah. they started that way. And so it's just it's just a different crowd, and they have such a personal connection. You know, they, they think about addiction in a totally different way than I did. And so, I mean, that's, I mean, that's fascinating to me. It's incredibly encouraging, you know, and I think with the personal connection for them. So many of the students came to talk to me afterwards just about personal things about their life, how they've been touched, or either them themselves are in recovery, uh, a lot of them wanting to get involved on all different levels. Some wanted to know how can I get involved on the ground level uh, with mm -hmm. naloxone administration and overdose type stuff. A lot of them wanted to know how do I get more involved with state legislature? You know, How can I start advocating on that level? So there was wide variety in the room of people interested in making big change about issues that when I was their age, I was not thinking about in the least. You probably wouldn't have been invited back then. Oh, no. Somebody like you with your lived experience. Yeah, no, you know. there's no question. I mean, I, I think I even commented on that. I mean, just that it's just profound that they would have someone like me come in and speak at this phase of their education that they see it as something that important to to share this experience and i also didn't want to make it so abstract that it's all about the patients you're going to take care of but i also did want to have it as this can happen to you too and i just want you to know that there are there's help out there there's outlets feel free to contact either you or me or we could put you in touch with a number of people um because i mean come on sean statistically it was just under 600 students some of them are going to be struggling if they're not already. For sure, for sure. And in that community, we know there's a higher rate of substance use disorders and mental health, you know, mental illness um, than the than the population, than the general population. Um, yeah, sure. And so I, I know. Talk, yeah. I mean, I wanted to talk more about that. I wanted to talk more about just what this job is going to be like for you, like what it's going to be like to give every ounce of effort and devote your life to something and have people still die. And how do you, how do you come back the next day and not carry that for your lifetime? Mm -hmm. The tricky thing is too, is that the like we know, the majority of people will not seek treatment, right? The majority of that, of that crowd. So you spoke to over two days, what, 600 people? Just about. Yeah. So we know, you know, somewhere between, say, 60 and 80, you know, will have an issue at some point and the majority of them will not seek treatment. So, 
you know, what do you do? Um, and, and you going in there and sharing your story is, you know, o- opens up, opens up the conversation, but, um, we have to take it further, right? We have to yeah. create environments in the medical community where people can share openly about their struggles. Um, and, and honestly, without the fear of punishment, without losing their license, without losing their, you know, job, um, and so I, I think that's a great first step. You know, I think we need more of that. Um, people with lived experience going in and, and talking about the realities. And, and that was one of the things like I loved about, I, I mean, I always, whenever I hear you speak, it's so honest, you know, and authentic and real. And, and I think sometimes that can make people uncomfortable. Um, but it's the truth, right? Right. Yeah. And, and There's we, definitely some uncomfortability <laughs> in that room, particularly yeah, but the it's, first part of it. <laughs> it's it's the reality of it, and the more we, you know, don't face that reality, um, we're just we're not going to get to where we want to go. Sure, uh, and and I mean that's why a lot of the stuff that I front loaded the talk with just a lot of history. I mean, it was really hard to deny looking around the room. I mean, that was a very white room. And so I just thought it was really important that we had to just not pretend like it's not happening and mm-hmm. highlight the reason that we are talking about this now is because people who look like the majority of that room are being affected by it. Uh, and then from there, move into just how that has shaped how we think about people. And then because that also shapes how we look at ourselves. And that was part of my story. One of the reasons I didn't ask for help is because I had this false image of what someone who struggles with drug use is like i thought that i was had become subhuman uh, and that's all because of conditioning over years and i just wanted to try to squash that as much as possible and put just put a human face on it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's the other thing that's always so powerful is is you know is humanizing it because the these are people these are lives and and they're us like we're all the same we're no different you know the guy in kensington on the corner you know with the needle in his arm or under the bridge i mean we are no different and we have this you know idea of exceptionalism and we think we're so special right even a lot of us that are in recovery right sure um, yeah. there's like this hierarchy and it's ridiculous um, but the fact I mean, is, most of us come from privilege. Most of us that have recovered have have had access to resources that nobody else has. You know, even even the professional health programs, and you know, there's good and there's bad. Like we know, we talk about that is that's a recovery program of privilege. You sure, know, absolutely. And it all costs money and testing and groups and no, like f- for five years. You know, mm-hmm. in the physician's health program. Um, who gets that? Nobody right. has access access to that. Right. Um, and and everybody should have access to that. Um, yeah, absolutely. No matter who you are. Yeah. Well, they should actually. I mean, they honestly, they should have access to better than that. They should have better than that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's a conversation for another <laughs> yeah, day. That's separate. Uh, yeah, you yeah. know, but I mean, I think so that's what I think about the programs that that we were in. I think there's a workable framework there. You know, there, it's a place to start that we can then build on. The framework of PHPs and and nurse monitoring programs and things like that. I think there's a lot of good things. We don't need to, you know, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, mm-hmm. We can we can take that and then build on it and make it better. And I think a big part of that is going to be through 
individualizing treatment. And that's what I talked mm-hmm. about. If, if we really value about, if this is really about patient safety and public safety, and ultimately restoring people's careers and making them a better practitioner than they were before, uh, then we should be concerned with overall health mm-hmm. of our practitioners and individualize and tailor these treatments to address. I mean, it's just drug treatment in general is so focused on the drug and stopping the drug. When that was the last piece for me, everything else had fallen apart. And then I found drugs. and I was like, oh, OK, so this temporarily seems to fix what's wrong. It's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a small drop in the in in the bucket for sure. Um, and and what other disease do we squeeze somebody into, you know, a square peg? Yeah. Every single person. Yeah, right? none. None. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It's not we have one drug. We have one behavior modification. We have sure. one diet modification. I mean, it does not work like that. And this is a disease. Right. And we need individualized treatment. I mean, I mean, that is the best care. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, you know, I'm in agreement with that. So, yeah, we have to keep talking about it. I agree. And I think a lot of the I think the ownership uh, on, on changing all this, Sean, really rests with with us, not you and me, but other health professionals who are in recovery. Like it really is time to come out and, and like I talked about, create a culture of recovery in the workplace. So that we're not some strange anomaly or this this you know almost like a you know leper colony type thing mm-hmm. you know that that it's a normalized thing that yeah nurses docs medics we all suffer with this thing but we also recover together as well and then can be a valuable asset and resource but until we start speaking out and being public about our recovery and making forcing people to realize that it's normal mm-hmm. um, I just I don't see how much is going to change. Yeah. So, so we have a lot of responsibility in that. You're preaching to the choir here. I, I think it's a tall order. I mean, I know so many professionals in recovery. And I, I'm not sure I know anyone who's practicing. Who? Well, I shouldn't say anyone. There's a couple I know. But out of, you know, many, many, uh, I mean, there's maybe one or two. Yep. That, that are willing to speak and e- and even those that are willing to speak, it's really in certain, you know, yeah. environments and scenarios. Yeah. It's not. Well, it's, it's understandable. It's, it's and oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I would. I would. I'm I would not. Do, uh, I mean, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, so I mean, it's pretty easy for me. You know, my license is currently suspended. I mean, I've been working for years to restore it, and I have a, a year left until I get it restored. But e- either way. It's not so I'm not risking losing everything that is something that I already have. I mean, so it's asking a lot of people to do that. And I don't I don't take that lightly, mm-hmm. but I care much more about the people as a whole who suffer and are still suffering in silence over this than I do about my personal livelihood. I don't mean that as like yeah. I'm some martyr, but I just I think when we look back history, you know, in history, I don't want to be the guy that kept quiet and maybe could have been a part of a more positive change. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense at all, I probably didn't. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I feel that I have a responsibility. You know, I, I'm open and because of my story and my situation, I have the ability to be open without any kind of retribution. And I, sure. I, I think it's I have a responsibility to my colleagues 
that are suffering. You know, I hear it all the time. I speak to you know many professionals in recovery regularly, and they are suffering. You know, either with their you know recovery program or the state's recovery program, or at work or in their lives, because the fact is they're still in hiding, right? And we all know, like addiction is you know a disease of isolation, and just the cult the culture reinforces that isolation and that keeps us sick and i kind of think like your recovery my recovery in many ways is so much stronger because we are able to speak openly and honestly and and not continue to to you know bob and weave and hide and worry who knows you know i don't want them to know and you know is somebody going to look at me a certain way or think of me professionally a different way um we're in some ways we're we're really lucky you know, I think. Um, no, I agree uh, with that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the, so I guess that's a good spot for us to wrap up this episode of Health Professionals and Recovery. And so we thanks, thank you for listening to us. Thank you for listening to Health Professionals in Recovery. Please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. If you are struggling with substance use disorder and need help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-4357. Take it from us, people can and do recover.